Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make Him known. The Old Testament lesson for today is from Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. This reading can be found on page 930 of your pew Bible. Nahum delivers a prophetic message regarding God's judgment of the Assyrians, who brutally assaulted his people in Israel and Judah. These verses describe both God's holy anger toward evil and his goodness toward those who take refuge in him. A reading from Nahum chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Thanks be to God for the reading of his holy word. We have good news and we have bad news. As people who believe in and align our lives to the word of God, we have good news And we have bad news. In sum, the bad news is that the world is broken. It's not operating the way it was designed to. The good news is that God has sent a remedy. The person, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. There's bad news and there's good news. And lately I've been noticing, among Christians in particular, that we maybe have forgotten this aspect that we are bearers of 
good news. There's a lot of bad headlines out there. There's a lot of things to keep us anxious, things going on in the world. There is bad news out there. The world is broken. But we are people of the gospel. That word gospel simply means good news. We are bearers of, we are proclaimers of the gospel, the good news. And returning to this chapter in Nahum, Joe did a good job reading it. It's this dreadful minor prophet chapter of the Bible. Maybe you're wondering, what is he going to do with this chapter? I've been wondering that all week. It's got a lot of bad news in it. But we have to be aware of, we have to recognize the bad news so that the good news can shine more brightly, like, like a diamond in the rough, like a light shining in the darkness. We're in the middle of our three-year chronological study of the entire narrative of the Bible, and we find ourselves in this really, this kind of tough sledding section of the Minor Prophets. The people of God, the nation of Israel, they're under attack from the Assyrians at this point. I brought this map I want you to see. They were living during a time when it may have felt only as if there was bad news going on. You see the Assyrian Empire up here and the Babylonian Empire, both of which at various times had taken God's people, the Israelites, captive. They had utterly destroyed their society, basically. I'm not going to describe in full detail the horrible war atrocities that the Assyrians had done, but I'll just um, describe it very briefly. I know there's little ears in the room. They were so vicious in their war tactics. They would take people they had captured, throw their bodies up on a pole, and disembowel them for all to see. And there were many other things like that that the Assyrians would do. They were horrific in their treatment of their enemies. So we think we have bad news going on in our society. It's nothing like what the Israelites were living through under the boot of oppression of the Assyrians. And the minor prophets were the, the only reason we call them minor is because their books are short. They were prophets during this time of exile and of oppression. And a common phrase that would come out in the prophet's voice, here's an example of one from Habakkuk 1 verse 2. Habakkuk said, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? See, the minor prophets were giving voice to the cry of the people. Lord, are you paying attention? Do you know what's going on? Your enemies have attacked us, the promised land, the land that you promised to give us. With safety and refuge, it's become overtrodden by our enemies. We cry out to you. Do you hear what's going on? And if you put that map back up real quick, I just want to show where we are. Last week, we looked at Jonah. You see this city, Nineveh, over here in the Assyrian Empire? Jo that's the city Jonah refused to go to because he knew how awful they were. He knew that God was going to give them grace. Well, this is a little bit later, this Nahum chapter, this Nahum moment in the, in the history of God's people. Nahum is like, if, if the books of the Bible were like movies, Nahum would be like Jonah part two, <laughs> the post-apocalyptic sequel that nobody asked for. The Assyrians turned back after God gave them grace, which we saw last week in the Jonah story. They went back to their old wicked ways. And the minor prophets cry out, 
how long, O Lord, will this violence continue and you will not save? And then Nahum comes along with what seems to be a bit of an answer to that how long question. When evil seems to be winning every headline, when the bad news is raging, and we cry out, Lord, how long will you allow this to happen? Nahum comes along with a bit of an answer. Verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision Nahum of Elkosh. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The people who heard Nahum at this point probably thought, yes, God's going to bring his wrath. He's an avenging God. Our enemies are oppressing us. Tell us more, Nahum. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Go get them, God. Verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord is slow to anger. Oh, that's right. When we see evil with a long leash, when we see evil winning the headlines, and we say, Lord, how long? He reminds us through Nahum that he's slow to anger. We love the idea of his wrath, his anger being poured out on our enemies. And then he says, do you remember that part about me being slow to anger that you love? <laughs> we love that, don't we? We love it when it's applied to us. When we realize our own sin, we say, thank you, Lord, for being slow to anger. But will you be quick to anger on my enemies? It's the very same God who's slow to anger. Perhaps he's giving those enemies yet another chance to repent, like we saw last week. His mercy is being extended one more time. He's slow to anger and great in power, but then it brings us back to this point. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. God will Avenge. Now, this is a bit of hope, even in the midst of the bad news. We're in the bad news section of the scripture here. There is a bit of hope here when we hear this reminder from God that he will deal eventually. Even though he's slow to anger, he will deal eventually with all the evil in this world. He will deal eventually with his enemies. His wrath will be poured out against his adversaries. All the forces of evil in this world, God will Avenge, he says. That's an important word for us to consider for a moment. God will avenge. There's another scripture that says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, this is a, a, a word of hope for us. God will eventually deal with, by his wrath, his enemies. But it also has a practical application in our lives. If it's true that God will avenge, that means we don't have to. When evil comes against us, we don't have to avenge. I'm just borrowing from the words of Jesus himself, or from the words of Paul himself in Romans 12, verse 19. Listen to what it says, what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I've seen this happen over and over again in Christians' lives when they realize this truth from Scripture. It's a breakthrough in the Christian journey. When you realize that God will be faithful to his own word to avenge 
his enemies to avenge all the evil that's in the world, even when it's personified, when it comes against us in a personal relationship, our flesh rises up and we want to avenge, don't we? But there's a breakthrough that happens when we realize that God will deal with evil eventually on his terms. If there's somebody coming against you and you want to avenge them, guess what? You can fight for justice, you can fight for what's right, you can protect yourself, but you don't have to avenge. Because that person, that situation that's coming against you will eventually have to answer to God. And you can leave vengeance, you can leave wrath in the hands of God. We're freed up then. As it says in the rest of that Romans 12 passage, if we're not needing to avenge our enemies, guess what we can do? We can love them. That's a radical breakthrough in the life of the Christian. We can bless our enemies. And we can also receive the love that God is giving us if we're not so caught up, if we're not so consumed by our own revenge cycle. We can receive God's love. And that's what happens a little bit here in verse 7. I'm going to skip some verses for time. Verse 7, it says, The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. Just picture again, these people who were living under the boot of oppression from the Assyrian Empire, from the enemies. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, that's his wrath being poured out against his enemies, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, what's going on in these two verses? It's an interesting little couplet. The Lord is good, it says, stronghold in day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he'll make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The image that's coming into my mind as I read these two verses is that of, of a shepherd, a good shepherd. We picture this image often as we go through the biblical story. A good shepherd holding a, a little ewe lamb or gathering the sheep into the pen. It says the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. Like a shepherd caring for that flock. We love that image. We forget sometimes that the shepherd who cares for us so tenderly also has to fight off the wolf that comes against his flock. He pursues his enemies into the darkness, it says in verse 8. Like a shepherd pursuing that wolf back out into the darkness to protect the sheep. Both things are true at the same time. He cares for us tenderly. The Lord is good. He's a shepherd. He cares for us. And he has to fight off the enemy. His wrath will consume the enemy. I'm going to tell a story that I've told before. So if you've heard it before, or you've been here a while, you get to hear it again. But if you're new, you get to hear it for the first time. It's an experience that I had that really illustrates this biblical truth about who God is. The shepherd illustrates it one way, caring for us tenderly, taking refuge in him, but also fighting off the enemy. But I had this, this vision, this vision in the spirit one time. We were living at the old parsonage, just around the bend here, where Scott and Katie now live, next to the old church. And my children were really little. My son Riley was three or four years old. And his bedroom was on the second floor. And he had a window next to his bed that overlooked the old sanctuary. 
any of you have been in that old parsonage, you can probably picture what I'm talking about. And I used to go in every night after my children were asleep, and I used to just lay hands on them and pray for them. And I did this one night. I, I was kneeling next to Riley's bed, and I just put my, I think, a hand on his forehead and a hand on his shoulder. And I was just praying for him, and that window that overlooked the sanctuary was behind me. I was praying for Riley, who, even from an early age, was reporting dreams and visions in the Holy Spirit. Somehow, when I was, when I was close to him, the Holy Spirit was showing me a vision as well. I was suddenly very aware of a scene that was taking place behind me. My head wasn't turned, I wasn't looking in that direction, but I was aware of it in the Spirit. And it wasn't taking place in the sanctuary behind me, but rather out the front steps of the old sanctuary. And what I saw in my mind's eye was a mighty warrior angel. And he was kind of crouched down in a warrior position like this. He had like Roman armor on and his muscles were protruding and he was sweating because he was working so hard. In his left hand, he held a sword and he was fighting off the kingdom of darkness And it was like a horrible scene over there on the left side of his body, but he was just fighting it off, working so hard. With his right arm, though, it was extended like this. And over his right arm was this giant wing. I was just seeing all this as I touched my son for prayer. It all kind of came to me right in that moment. Over his right arm was this giant wing that extended over the parsonage and over the old chapel and all the way over this property as well. And under that wing was Stanwich Church. It was us. It was the people. And it was this beautiful, harmonious, light-filled, joyful scene. It was almost like a snow globe, but not cheesy. Just beauty and harmony and joy. So I saw all this at once. The warrior angel fighting off the kingdom of darkness working so hard to protect his church. And then I let go of my son and the vision was gone. I believe that that was the Holy Spirit showing me in just a simple way, pulling back the filters between the earthly and the spiritual realms. So let me see exactly what Nahum is talking about right here. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he'll make a complete end of the adversaries. God is fighting for us and providing for us. Now, I want to back up and zoom in on one word that will give us an even deeper understanding of what's going on in this passage. In verse 2, it says, the Lord is a jealous And avenging God. Seems like an interesting place to put the word jealous. What's going on here? Why would Nahum remind us that God is jealous? It would be very simple for Nahum to to say, God loves you, his people. He'll provide for you like a shepherd caring tenderly for a ewe lamb. That's you. And he'll fight off the enemies, but he says he's jealous. Why? Something interesting happened during the time of Nahum and the other minor prophets when the Assyrians invaded and treated so horribly the people of God. It was a terrible time for the Israelites, but for some weird, twisted, sinful reason, 
the Israelites began worshiping the gods, the false gods, the lowercase g gods of the Assyrians. Can you imagine that? The enemies of God trampling down on his people and their hearts turning a little bit towards the very gods that were coming against them. That's why God says, I'm jealous. We love this image of the shepherd holding on to the little ewe lamb, thinking that that's us and we're so sweet and innocent. But God looks into our hearts even, and he sees our hearts are prone to wander. It's not just sweet little innocent us and evil them. We also are infected by the power of sin. You see, there's the power of evil out there in the world, but there's also the power of sin in here, in our hearts. And God is jealous for us, for our hearts. He wants all of us. There's the power of evil and there's the power of sin, and both, according to Scripture, deserve the wrath of God. Both deserve to be pursued off into the darkness. Now that's, maybe, maybe that sounds like bad news for a moment. Wait, there's something in me that needs to be pursued off into the darkness? Yes. Both deserve the wrath of God. But here's the good news, okay? Here's the good news. Both have been dealt with on the cross. Both have been dealt with on the cross. Look at verse 15. This light shining in the darkness, this ray of hope in the midst of a terrible time of bad news. Verse 15, this pops out of the story. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Eventually, the Babylonians actually overtook the Assyrians. One of the enemies of God was destroyed by the other one. And it was somebody's job to run from Nineveh all the way back to Jerusalem to proclaim the good news. And there's mountain ranges between Nineveh and Jerusalem. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. There's somebody running across the wilderness, over the mountains, through the valleys, coming to Jerusalem to declare the good news. The war is over. Our enemy has been defeated. And this person came and brought the gospel, the good news that the enemy has been defeated, and for us, people of God, people of the gospel, bearers of good news, this is our declaration to a world that so desperately needs it. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he defeated the enemy of our souls, and he dealt with the sin within our hearts. The cross is the point at which God's mercy and his justice, or his wrath, Meet. Neither is diminished. He's merciful because he's forgiving us of our sins, and he's just because he's conquering the enemy. That all happens on the cross, and that's the good news. And we are bearers of, proclaimers of, heralds of the good news. Sometimes I look around at Christians these days who are so focused on and dwelling on the bad news, and I want to say, why so glum? We have the best news that the world needs to hear. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him or her 
who bear good news. That's us. We're the person running through the land declaring the good news. Will you indulge me just for a moment? And will you actually look at your feet, your own feet? Go ahead, take a look at your feet. (laughs) Behold, upon the mountains and in the grocery store aisle and in the workplace hallway and on the sidewalks and in the schools and even in our homes, the feet of him, of her, of you, of us, who bring good news, who publish peace. The war is over. Jesus has conquered our enemy and dealt with the sin within. We are bearers of the good news. The first thing we can do with our feet this morning is march them right to the communion table where we are reminded of this victory that we have in Christ. So let's stand right now and sing the communion hymn as we prepare our hearts to meet him at his table. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.